You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. It's a joy to see you, and it's a joy to worship the Lord together. And let me invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Redemption Church, we love the Bible. We believe it's God's word. We believe it's true. It's authoritative, sufficient in the life of God's people for the good of the preaching of the gospel. And so last week, we started a series through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book of the Bible that um, not many of us turn to regularly, but yet we see that it is filled with such wisdom. And so we're going to turn to this book again today as we work verse by verse through this book of the Bible. And today we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and I'm actually going to read all the way through chapter Two. So we've got a good amount to read this morning, but let's listen carefully as I read from God's word. I invite you to follow along with me as I read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get to get started seeing what the Lord will teach us from his word this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem." I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, 
all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the kings? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise, as to the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have read your word, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will speak to us and teach us and give us understanding of this text before us. Lord, we confess that in our limited minds and our difficulty in understanding, Lord, we, we are challenged to understand the wisdom of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. But Father, as I attempt to preach your word, Lord, I pray that you would fill my words with the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would convict sinners this day, that you would help us to see the vanity of life under the sun, and Lord, that you would help us all to look to Christ Jesus for help, for significance for purpose, for meaning, Lord, indeed, for the salvation of our souls. Lord, above all, we pray that you would glorify yourself this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for few, I think, have, have achieved as much on the football field as quarterback Tom Brady. Now, I know when you raise his name, people either hate him or love him. There, there, there tends to be two complete opposite reactions. But love him or hate him, the, the man's success is astounding with seven Super Bowls. They, it sort of speaks for himself. 
Few men have achieved that level of dominance in their sports. But we, we look at a man like Tom Brady, and we think that a guy like Tom Brady, man, he, he has it all, doesn't he? He seems to have everything that we think that we need. He's the most successful quarterback to ever play the game. He's famous. He's rich. And he's married to a supermodel. And Josue made sure I knew that she was a Brazilian supermodel, right? <laughs> I mean, Tom Brady seems to have everything that our world says we need. He's got wealth. He's successful. He's famous. But yet all those things don't satisfy the soul, do they? Upon the achievement of his third Super Bowl victory, so this is several years ago, Tom Brady was being interviewed on 60 Minutes. And the interviewer asked, what, what do you do when you've achieved the pinnacle of success? What do you do? Won three Super Bowls, now it's won seven, right? What did Tom Brady say back when he won three? This is what he answered that question with. Brady said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. What a revealing response. The interviewer wasn't satisfied with the answer. It pressed Brady a little bit more. He said, well, what's the answer then? What's, what's the answer? And Brady only said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. You see, Tom Brady may be our 21st century version of King Solomon in a way. And today, the preacher of Ecclesiastes invites us to take a stroll in his shoes, King Solomon's shoes. He's going to give us access to everything and everything that we can think of that we think we might need, anything our hearts desires, wisdom, intelligence, laughter, wealth, leisure, pleasure, righteousness, career success sex, all of it is going to be opened up for us today in the text. And yet, just like Tom Brady, we're going to come to the other side of chapter two, and we're going to raise the question, there's got to be something greater out there for me. There's got to be more to life than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. You see, we're going to join the preacher for his tour of this unrestrained life under the sun. And we will find that meaning and purpose can't be found under the sun. It must be found beyond the sun in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do today is we're going to first join the preacher and take a tour of all the pleasures, all the delicacies, anything that we could enjoy, anything we could use to try to find meaning under the sun, we're going to consider it. And we're going to come out, we're going to see that all of it is striving after the wind, all of it is vanity, and then secondly, we will discover the true meaning that is actually beyond the sun, beyond this earth, into the Lord. So let's first consider the search for meaning under the sun. Now, when the preacher uses this phrase, under the sun, he refers to examining life merely within this material world. In many ways, he's almost adopt, adopting the secular view of the world. And, and in this sense, Ecclesiastes feels eerily contemporary. This book that's written thousands of years ago sounds so similar as it speaks to our own cultural moment. Because since the Enlightenment, philosophers and scientists and artists and cultural makers, most of them have gone about their work with the assumption that the spiritual re world is not real and the material world is all there is. 
Modern man rejects the concept of the transcendent and thus thinks and acts and works as simply all there is is molecules. As philosopher Charles Taylor argues, we live in a secular age because our culture, we tend to easily adopt this worldview which considers only life under the sun, only this material world. In other words, everyone seems to be wrestling and trying to find purpose and meaning and significance and satisfaction only in this world. But here's the thing that Solomon and the preacher in Ecclesiastes is going to teach us, is that we can try to grab every straw that the world would offer you, and you're always going to come up short. The preacher wants us to see the vanity of life under the sun. And he applies his heart to seek and to search for wisdom. That's what he's doing in the text here. He's applying his heart, he's applying his wisdom, and he's trying to answer that question, what is life all about? What is it all about? And he announces his conclusion before he begins the tour. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. The preacher says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after wind. That's the conclusion. That's what we're going to discover. You see, we live in a generation that's trapped under the sun, don't we? They're anxious, they're confused, they're looking for purpose, and many are deluded in thinking that I can find satisfaction in this world. You see, even though our culture denies it, we know that the Bible says every human being is made in the divine image. The preacher of Ecclesiastes would say in chapter 3 that God has put eternity into the heart of man. So we're all longing for something more. We have this yearning for more, and, and we're frustrated that the sparkle of all our distractions that we consume and enjoy, all of it just leaves us emptier after we consume them. We are thirsty within life under the sun. And all we have to drink is ocean water. It only agitates our thirst even more. This is what it's life like to be in this fallen world. Indeed, look at verse 15. Maybe you sense this in your own soul. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be found. There's this sense in which the world is broken, our souls are out of alignment, if you will, and we need significance. We need answers. Nevertheless, we keep on searching, and most people merely embark on that search under the sun. And so, the tour of life under the sun begins, and our first stop, starting in verse 16, is the vanity of wisdom and knowledge. The vanity of wisdom and knowledge. So our first stop in life under the sun is to the university. <laughs> the university. On the surface, we might think, well, this is a good place to start to try to find answers to the meaning of life. Go to the university, go to college, go sit under some good professors, read some good books. After all, these seem like fruitful pursuits to engage in. More knowledge, more truth. Become a professor, become an academic, get degrees. Maybe that's the pathway to significance. So the preacher works to experience all this wisdom, all this knowledge, and notice what he says in the text. He wants to know not just what is wise, but what is madness and folly. He wants to know the teaching of Aristotle and Plato, Buddha and the Quran, David Hume and Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx and Adam Smith. He wants to know it all. He wants to have all that knowledge, all that intellectual ability. And here's what he begins to find out, is that you may have many leather-bound books, many doctoral degrees, many books written and read, but yet the preacher says, I perceive that this also 
is but a striving after wind. Striving after wind, that's all it is. Now, why would that be? Well, verse 18 gives us a clue. What does the preacher say? For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You see, wisdom and knowledge can actually make us irritable, can't they? Because by them, we see just how crooked and out of whack this world is in our own hearts. We see the confusion and contradiction, the tension within human wisdom. Because what can be ascertained from study and from research and from reading, it actually only increases sorrow. As we see more and more the brokenness and the frailty of this world, see more of the pain, more of the evil under the sun, we sense the crookedness of the world with greater capacity and comprehension. As the saying goes, ignorance is bliss. There's something to that, isn't there? Ignorance is bliss. Knowledge the preacher says, can make you even more miserable than when you began. Searching for life's meaning and wisdom and knowledge, all, the preacher says it leads just to a dead end. So the university, we pull that straw, we're coming up short. Let's take another stop along the way. Let's look at the vanity of pleasure and possessions. So if we started at the university, now let's go to the buffet, every American's favorite, right? And of course, we know the best buffet is Pizza Inn, right? That's the best one. But the buffet, there's something enticing about a buffet, right? Because you've got all you want to consume, so many options, all of it is available to you. And so the preacher takes us to the buffet of pleasure. If we can't find satisfaction through the mind, that doesn't work. Maybe we can find satisfaction through the stomach, through our carnal desires, so the preacher says in his heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But yet we will find this too, guess what, is vanity. So we're going to join in the song called The Wanderer by Johnny Cash and you too. And we're going to go out walking and riding as Johnny Cash sings in search of experience to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. So let's grab a plate at the buffet of pleasure under the sun, and let's see where it leads us. Let's follow the thought of the, of the preacher. Look at chapter 2, verse 2, right? Let's start with humor, with laughter, enjoyment, merriment. We love a good hearty laugh, don't we? We love to laugh. We love to, to have that joy. But yet, it's funny, right, that our comedians tend to be, one, not very funny, and two, rather cynical and dark, don't they? Some of the funniest people who cause us to laugh the most tend to have the most tragic lives. Just look at the late Robin Williams as an example. That even gut-busting laughter can't dispel the existential angst in the human heart. It's a dead end. Well, what about good drink? Fine wine. Maybe, maybe that can help us. Maybe that pleasure will satisfy. Perhaps we can count on booze to cheer us up. So many people do. Whether we are a connoisseur of fine wines or whether we attend a, a keg binger at a frat party, maybe that would do it. Maybe finding satisfaction in alcohol will do it. Well, guess what? It's a dead end. Proverbs would say, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You see, satisfaction can't come by the indulgence of our appetites, can it? 
whether it's alcohol, whether it's nicotine, whether it's carbs, whether it's sugars, it doesn't matter. To attempt to find satisfaction through carnal indulgence, satisfying the stomach, it often not only leads to the ruining of your life, it leads to the ruining of your health. Okay, well, that doesn't work. Laughter is out. Wine is out. What, what if we build ourselves nice big homes? What if we do that? And what if we decorate it with such beauty that it surpasses that of the great Joanna Gaines, right? What if we have a house that's that immaculate, that beautiful, that pristine? Can HGTV satisfy the human heart? But guess what? You can put shiplap up on walls, but you cannot shelter yourself from the emptiness within. You can expand your square footage, but you can't expand your joy. What about recreation and leisure? Maybe that could do it. What if we had a massive amount of land, huge amount of acreage, where we could plant parks and gardens and fruit trees, just like the, the preacher describes? What if you could travel the world? And what if you could live on vacation? What if you could jump from one great beach to another like an Instagram influencer? But guess what? You can sleep on the finest beaches in the world and yet not be at rest. What if we had servants? That sounds nice. Servants that could attend to our whatever needs. We didn't have to lift up a finger to do anything. What if we had Uber drivers, right? To cart us around from place to place or DoorDash delivery people who could come and bring us food on our doorsteps. Or what if we had Walmart employees who could actually do our grocery shopping for us and put it in our trunks? What if we could hire a maid to clean our home? What if we could hire a guy to cut our grass? What if we could hire a chef at a restaurant to cook us a meal or a waiter to refill my drink? You see, you can assemble an army of service workers to attend to your every physical need, but none of them can serve and minister to your soul. Okay, well, that doesn't work. What, what if I had money, right? Money fixes everything. What if, what if I had the wealth of Jeff Bezos, right? What, what if I had that much money, Amazon kind of money? But like Solomon, what if I do in verse 8 of chapter 2, what if I gathered silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces? What if you received that higher salary that you've been working for? What if you made millions in stocks? What if you accumulated wealth so much so? All of it, Solomon says, is striving after the wind. The preacher will say in chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Money doesn't do it. What, what if we live like Hugh Hefner, right? What, what if we live like him? What if concubines could be watched for our entertainment with a simple tap on our screens? What if I could summon a sexual encounter with a swipe to the left or to the right? What, what if every delight of the sons of man could be known to me and experienced? You see, not only are such pleasures deceptive and unsatisfying, but they are inherently dangerous. Again, listen to the Proverbs. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as the two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. You see, sexual encounters tend to just ravage the soul, leaving us lonely, leaving us broken, leaving us hollow. And it's a path that leads to our own destruction. 
So the preacher, notice what he's done, right? He's gone down the buffet line of pleasure. He's filled his plate with everything imaginable. He's, he's tried a little bit of everything. He's piled a plate full. He's had a hearty laugh. He's had fine wine. He has the gorgeous house. He has the relaxing gardens. He has many servants. He has abundant wealth. He has constant entertainment. He has unrestrained sex. And yet, it's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. None of it satisfies the soul's longing for significance. Maybe this is why modern man is so miserable. As Americans, we have ready access to a lifestyle that rivals that of Solomon himself. We have the means to try and enjoy whatever our hearts desires in this country. But yet, we're miserable. Why is that so? See, maybe you're, you're silly enough to think, well, there are some things I can't have, right? I'm, I'm limited by my income, but if I could have them, if I could reach that next level of income, if I could reach that next level of home or possession or car or whatever it is, right, then I will have enough. But it's never enough. It's never enough. Whatever goal you think you're hitting, it's never enough. Because after all, as we look at Solomon's life, he had unlimited resources, unlimited access to whatever his heart desired, and yet he senses it's all striving after the wind. It's all vanity. Look at verse 10. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, but yet the conclusion is the same. Look at verse 11. All is vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Shocking. So we go from the university. That doesn't work. Let's go again to now the buffet. That doesn't work. Let's continue on in verse 12 through 17 as we consider the vanity of morality and being a good person. So if we've gone from the university, we've gone to the buffet, let's try living a good moral life. Let's try going to the soup kitchen and doing our good civil duty and service. Let's see if that satisfies now, the preacher here starts to get much more cynical and desperate as this journey is continuing on. He knows that it's better to live in wisdom than in folly, right? Look at verse 14 or verse 13. There's more to be gained in light than in darkness. In verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. You know, here the preacher is introducing some things that he's going to unpack and expand later on in the letter. So I, my comments will be brief here. But living a moral life is a perfectly fine thing to do. There's more light in being a good person <laughs> than the darkness of folly. But yet, the preacher recognizes being a good person is also a foolish thing. And why is that? Why is it also a vanity? Because both the foolish man and the wise man, he recognizes, have the same conclusion. What's the conclusion? Death, right? You can be a good person. You can be an evil person. You still die. Remember, we are adopting the, the secular viewpoint here, looking at merely life under the sun. This is all there is, a life under the sun. Here we're considering, considering the moral life, not from the vantage point of the scriptures, but we're looking at it from the vantage point of the materialists. As Christians, we know that there is a life beyond the sun. There is a life, and so living rightly for the glory of God is significant. It is important. 
But yet for those who consider life merely under the sun, the question is raised, what good is it to be moral if we enter into death and enter into darkness? As the preacher says in verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. And we can begin to get a little uncomfortable here because the the preacher is getting into darker and and treacherous territory, if you will. The the existential despair beginning to crop up in his life is becoming increasingly thick. Look at verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. So the soup kitchen doesn't do any better either. Living that good moral life, that doesn't provide lasting significance. Let's make a final stop, the vanity of career and work in verse 18 through verse 23. So in this deep sea dive for meaning, for purpose in life, we've got one final stop before we come up for air a little bit. So hang in there with me, right? We have traveled to the university. We've traveled to the buffet. We've traveled to the soup kitchen. Now we're traveling to the office, right? The office. Perhaps we can find lasting purpose in our work. But yet, the shadow of death also haunts our work, too. We can't get away from it. We work hard all our lives. We dig those ditches. We push that paper. We build our businesses. We climb those corporate ladders. And what do we have to show for it? The preacher says anything we've accumulated by work, we die, and then we leave it behind to someone who will come after us. And that's sad, right? You, you say you work your whole life, saving up retirement, you pay off your mortgage, and then you die, and then everything you work for is left to your children. After all, you're, when you're gone, the preacher says, who knows that if your children will live like in wisdom or they're going to live as fools. You work hard your entire life, and then you just leave it for your children to enjoy. You see, death makes hard work and career success also vanity. You work hard, you work those long hours, you, you stress over those work problems, you, you conspire to get that promotion that you really, really want, and all of your days will be full of sorrow as the shadow of death inches closer and closer and closer until the grave swallows you whole. Leonard Wolf, who was the husband of Virginia Wolf, was a British publisher and writer who helped uh, begin the Bloomsbury Group. And towards the end of his life, looking back on his life of work and, and just career success, he commented this, and it's revealing. He says, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during these past five to seven years would be exactly the same as if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make the rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. What a shocking realization. What vanity. Work also, the preacher says, is vanity. So I've not let the pressure up so far through this sermon By now, perhaps you're feeling a little bit bruised, a little bit frustrated, a little bit irritated, maybe a little bit hopeless as we consider our lives. Indeed, that has partly been my aim because it's the aim of what the preacher is trying to help us do, help us see. The preacher has taken us through this tour of life under the sun, and he has shown us that everything that people try to find significance in, all of it is vanity. Life in the university, vanity. 
life consuming from the pleasure buffet, vanity. Life of living a good moral service to our community, also vanity. Life at the office in your career, also vanity. The preacher has kind of brought us thus far in the book and has left us kind of scrambling for, for meaning under the sun like rats rummaging for cheese in a dumpster. Any attempt at nibbling at what the world says would, would satisfy us tends to swiftly break our necks like a mousetrap. It crushes our soul. Blaise Pascal once said, the mind naturally believes and the will naturally loves so that when there are no true objects for them, they necessarily become attached to false ones. In other words, human beings have been designed by God to hope, to love, to long for satisfaction. And if we buffer ourselves away from God and try to live our lives merely under the sun, our hopes and our loves will not be attached to the Lord, right? We're sheltering ourselves away from him. Instead, it's going to be attached to these false gods. This is similar to what Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, when he talks about we as all of humanity, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. You see, innate to human nature is this longing for satisfaction, for happiness, for joy, for rest, and we keep searching for it. We're searching for life under the sun. We're trying to find it, but we can't find it. We keep coming up empty. You see, the point of the preacher in Ecclesiastes so far is similar to what Augustine learned as he looked back over his life and his confessions. He famously observed, he said, you have made us for yourself, O God. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. You see, human beings in a fallen world are like hungry fish in a polluted sea. Right? In this fallen world, we're hungry. We want something to eat. We sense that we need it for our survival. And we will eat the garbage in the polluted ocean, even if it means we choke to death on the plastic. That's what happens to human beings in rebellion against the Lord. We can't help but search for satisfaction. We can't help but search for meaning, for purpose, for joy. You see, the preacher has given us this tour of life under the sun in order to show us that all the paths that the marketers tell you that you need to fulfill your life, all of them lead to a dead end. All of them. And the sooner you realize that, the more you'll be able to be awakened to the wisdom of the scriptures. Right? You have to see that they all lead to a dead end because the solution, as we will see, is not to try to fabricate your own meaning in life, but to discover that true meaning comes outside of life in the sun. True meaning, true life, true rest, true satisfaction comes only from the Lord, the God who created us and who made us for himself. And that leads, secondly, to discover the meaning beyond the sun the meaning beyond the sun. The preacher in Ecclesiastes has sent us spelunking down trenches and caverns of questions that most of us find a little uncomfortable to consider. He has shown us the vanity of life under the sun. But in verse 24, he begins to hint. He begins to point towards a better way. If you were here last week, it's so important to remember how the book ends. What is the preacher taking us to on this journey in this book? 
Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8, where the author concludes, fear God and keep his commandments. So this is the whole duty of man. You see, this, this verse summarizes the book's message, and it's a beacon of light for us at the end of the book that leads us out of the Mariana Trench as we try to find wisdom and life and purpose. And if we neglect that final verse, right, fear God and keep his commandments, we're going to get lost in Ecclesiastes, and we're going to find ourselves in the darkness of our perilous exploration. We have to keep that verse in our mind. You see, life under the sun is vanity. And the answer to our angst, the answers to our longing is to look to the God who is beyond the sun, to the transcendent God who has created us and who has provided for us. You see, when we recognize that God is the giver of all things, something amazing happens. Things under the sun begin to be imbued with significance and purpose and joy, right? Look at what the preacher says in verse 24 and verse 25. Such an important section here. The preacher says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Fascinating, right? If, if we look at it quickly, just give it a quick glance, it may seem that the preacher is promoting some sort of carpe diem philosophy, right? Seize the day. Enjoy the moments. As the young people used to say, YOLO, right? You only live once. Just enjoy it. Seize the moments. Enjoy the pleasure. That might seem like what he's saying. It might seem like he's just advocating selfish indulgence. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not actually what he's doing. You see, as Christians, we understand that this world is a gift given to us by the hand of God. And we know that the only way to be able to enjoy life in this world is by recognizing how the world is subordinate to God. We must make that recognition in our hearts. You see, the great source of our trouble in life is not the world. The trouble is, is inside of you, right? It's your heart. This is where the trouble is because we tend to place the things of earth in the place of God. And we dangerously reverse the order that God designed. We worship and serve creation rather than the creator. We dangerously reverse that order. And so when we begin to look for life under the sun, we can have everything that the world offers and yet still be absolutely miserable. When we look for life beyond the sun, though, when we look to life in our creator God, we can actually enjoy the gifts that he's given. And they don't make us miserable anymore because we don't look for them for joy and satisfaction and rest. We find that in the Lord. You see, we keep on turning God's gifts into false gods. This is what it means to be sinners. This is what it means to be in rebellion against the Lord. This is the way every one of us are born. We, we tend to worship and serve creation rather than the creator. And when we turn God's gifts into false gods, when we expect the things of earth to fulfill the quest we have for meaning and the longings we have for eternity, we discover, like the preacher, that it's all striving after wind. Striving after wind. It's trying to grab the wind in the air and direct it where you want to go. It can't happen. You see, a meaningful life, a significant life, a purposeful life, I mean, think about it today. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what every human being wants? How do we have that? Well, we must look to God himself. 
It is only found in God. The only way to truly enjoy life in this world is to find your life in the Lord. The empty yearning that haunts every human being can only be satisfied by the giver, not the gifts. The gifts that God gives in creation are meant to point us to the creator. That's the way God designed it. C.S. Lewis made this powerful observation. Let me share it with you. He said, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. For it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a far country we have not yet visited. You see, the song of creation points to the singer of the song. There is beauty in this world. There is pleasure in this world. But yet it is but a scent of a flower that we have yet to find. Friend, perhaps you've spent your whole life so far rummaging through the earth, looking for something lasting, looking for something significant. You've maybe walked a similar path to that of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. But yet, listen carefully, I'm telling you, if you had Tom Brady's life, you would not be satisfied. You would not. You would be still asking, is this it? This is it. You see, it is in God alone that we live and move and have our being, and you will not be at rest until you find your rest in your creator God. You see, there's a problem, and the problem is that you are a sinner. I'm a sinner, and that because of our sin, we are alienated from God. We have made an idol out of our lusts for pleasure, out of our work, out of our intellect. We have exchanged the truth of God for that lie. But yet the God that has given us this good world to enjoy can redeem you from your abuse of it. Your sin has wrought a whirlwind. Your false worship has wrought this whirlwind of emptiness, despair, loneliness, and hopelessness. However, the good news is that God is gracious and that he is abounding in love for sinners. Abounding in love. God has entered life under the sun, taking on flesh, dwelling among us. Jesus Christ is the righteous one of God who lays down his life and who can redeem you from your sin. You can be united to God. You can find your rest in him. And the only way to do that is by coming to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his death upon the cross lays down his life, pours out his blood, who makes atonement for sin so that you and I as rebellious, treasonous sinners can be reconciled to a good, holy, and all-satisfying God. This is the good news of the gospel, that by grace, you can have what you most deeply desire. You can have lasting joy. You can have lasting significance and purpose. You deserve death. You deserve condemnation. You deserve enmity with God because of your sin. But by God's grace, he gives us what he, we don't deserve. He gives us what we most deeply long. 
So let me urge you, friend, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He will redeem you. He will fill you with joy. Repent of trying to find your life in the things of earth. Leave it behind. Forsake it. Count it all as loss compared to the surpassing value of Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when you find your enjoyment first in God, something amazing begins to happen. The things of earth can begin to be rightly enjoyed as God's gift. We can go to the university and we can engage our minds in study because we've been given Christ who is the wisdom of God. We can go to the buffet of pleasure, of laughter, wine, wealth, and sex, and we can use it rightly as God intended and enjoy it. We can go to the soup kitchen, right? We can live that moral life. We can serve our community because we know that death is not the end, right? Death has been swallowed up by the victory of Christ's resurrection and eternity awaits us. We can go to the office and we can do our work with excellence for the glory of Christ, knowing that we will hear the voice of our master and Lord say to us in eternity, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, those of you who find your life in Christ, once you've been reconciled to the Lord, remember this, remember this, every good and perfect gift comes from above, everyone. And as Christians, we ought not to be killjoys with a grit your teeth and misery sort of life. No, we as God's people, filled with the Holy Spirit in right relationship with the world, we can rightly enjoy the world that God has made. We can rightly enjoy it, which means this, listen carefully, as Christians, we ought to be the happiest people on the planet, the happiest people because we can enjoy this world as God's gift. We're not looking for this world for satisfaction, for purpose. We have found our happiness and joy in God, and so therefore we can enjoy the blessings that God has given us. Look at what the preacher says in verse 26. He says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. You see, the preacher of Ecclesiastes calls us to enjoy what God has given in the world. You see, as Christians, we are not to live for the present, but we do live in the present. It's a very important distinction. So much of our joy as God's people, I think, is dampened by worrying over the future, isn't it? We have to live in the moment as we live for eternity. This is what the preacher is pointing towards, right? If you if you are anxious about everything, anxious about the future, Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. But if you have found rest in Christ, let me urge you to enjoy today as God's gift. Enjoy it as a gift. So, so friend, don't, don't get so, so caught up in your career that you forget to enjoy dinner with your family. Don't get so tied up in your investment returns and dividends that you Forget to enjoy the bed with your spouse. Don't get so tied up with home renovations that you forget to sit on the porch and watch the sunset. Don't get so tied up with your cleaning and your chore list that you forget to listen to the symphony of beautiful music. Don't get so tied up with your learning and study that you miss getting on the floor and playing with your children. You see, the world is filled with pleasure. It's filled with joy. It's filled with beauty. And yet they all flow from God himself. And when we rightly recognize him as creator, 
as Redeemer, as Lord, we will have lasting joy, joy abundantly. And when we enjoy God, guess what? We can rightly enjoy his gifts. All of this is enabled by God's mercy to us in Christ Jesus. What is the chief end of man? But to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, in heaven alone is attainment of our highest good. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper happiness and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here, better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. They are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. You see, as you enjoy God's good world, rightly reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ, may your heart continue to long with even greater joy for the source of every pleasure, the source of every joy, the source of everything good and beautiful. It finds its origination in the Lord. Every joy and pleasure that you will experience in this life is but a drop of the ocean that we will find in the Lord himself. And it is in God himself that in the drops of pleasure of this life, he, at eternity, when we meet him, when we see him face to face, he will plunge us into the ocean of pleasure and enjoyment in himself forevermore. Church, heaven awaits, eternity will dawn, the resurrection is coming, Christ will make all things new, and what pleasures awaits God's people on that day. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you, recognizing how foolish we can so, so frequently live. Lord, we repent of confusing the gifts with the giver. Father, I know many of us sense and feel the the hopelessness of trying to find meaning, find enjoyment, find pleasure under the sun. Lord, help us to realize that you alone can provide rest for our weary souls. It comes through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those here this day, Lord, who are in despair, who sense the vanity of this life, who know the frustration of striving after the wind. Lord, I pray that you would help them to find their hope, to find their rest in Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, may they repent of their sins. May they, may they put their faith in Jesus and Lord, so be saved. And Father, as their souls are at rest, as we are reconciled to you through Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that the joys and the pleasures that we experience day by day in this world would cause us to yearn and long and hunger even more for you, our God, who provides every good thing to your children. Lord, we love you and we worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.